The reading is from Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 1, verses 1 to 11. This can be found on page 1132. It's Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we, are also, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks very much for reading, and uh, a very good morning to you. Uh, it's very good to see you. Um, please keep that passage open on page uh, 1132. And uh, on the back of your service sheets this morning, you'll see there's an outline of where we're hoping to go. Before we start, though, I'll lead us in a prayer. Psalm 33 says this, For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry hosts, by the breath of his mouth. Our glorious and gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that your word is right and true. So Father, as we come to hear your word to us now, please Help us to receive it like that, as those who trust in its truthfulness. Thank you, too, Father, that your word is powerful, that by it you created the universe in which we now live. And so, Father, we pray that as your word is heard, that it would powerfully work in us by the power of your spirit. Please transform our hearts, Father, and transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We all crave stable relationships, but we know that they are difficult to find. All of us will have had that experience of being in some sort of relationship, whether it be work or a romantic relationship or a, a family relationship, and not feeling secure. I've always having that sense that things could change. 
And all of us, sadly, will have had that experience of trust in someone and that person letting us down and never being quite sure after that whether we can trust other people. See, we all crave stable relationships, but we know they're difficult to find. Uh, the social commentator, Zygmunt Bauman, uh, he's not a Christian. He died a couple of years ago. He's a Polish sociologist. And um, he's got a great phrase for um, our culture today and how it thinks about relationships. Uh, he calls them liquid relationships, liquid relationships. See, Bauman argues that our, uh, our values as a culture, uh, values like freedom and consumer choice and individual expression, they've affected the way that we think about relationships. So he puts it like this, we, we think of relationships a bit like buying consumer goods. We invest in someone, we have a relationship with someone if we feel that they're going to satisfy us. And Bauman, again, not a Christian, remember, he argues that our culture is deeply unstable when it comes to relationships. We don't think of relationships as viable, uh, as reliable, but as liquid, with this constant sense that things might change. And I think that mindset, I don't know about you, but that mindset can kind of be mapped onto God. The way we think about God today, I think, is is like a liquid relationship. Many of us trust him, but we don't, we sometimes doubt that he's fully committed to us. We treat him like we've got a liquid relationship with him. Perhaps we're someone, and we're just, we struggle with a kind of negative outlook. Perhaps we're tired, we feel apathetic about life generally, and we struggle to believe that God is as dependable as he says. Or perhaps people close to us have let us down in a big way. An absent parent, a poor treatment at work, a partner who's mistreated us, a church who has failed to be there when it mattered. And we project those poor relationships onto the relationship that we have with God himself. Or perhaps we're just a realist and we know how thick, uh, fickle people are. We know that people say one thing and often do another. And it's too much of a leap to imagine that God wouldn't be any different. Which is why I think we need Romans chapter 5. See, because this chapter and this passage particularly shows us that God is committed to us in a way that I think we struggle to believe in our culture. Now, how do we see this? Well, uh, the passage is a bit like an epilogue in a movie. You know, that, that bit in the film that comes after the story has been resolved. Um, you know, the couple get together, they kiss, the sun sets, um, the hero saves the day, and then you go back and revisit the action, you see how life has changed. And that's what this passage and the passages that follow it are, are doing. It's showing us life after Romans 1 to 4. Now, if you remember Romans 1 to 4, um, you'll know that the big theme... The big question in those chapters is how are we put right with God? And the answer that Romans 1 to 4 have shown is that it comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing we do, no religious devotion, nothing we bring makes us right with God. Jesus alone has put us right with God. 
And chapter 5 onwards is showing us what life is like now that we have been put right with God if we're Christian. And in this first half of the chapter, Paul, who's the writer of the letter, he focuses in on God's commitment to us to persuade us that God is absolutely committed. It's not a liquid relationship. And he does this from two perspectives. Uh, First of all, he shows us that God is committed to us in the now, in this present life, and he will be committed to us in the future. And if you see that uh, on the service sheets, you'll see that's where we're going to go this morning. Uh, We're going to look at God's commitment to us now and in the future, and I'm afraid I'll run out of space to do the third one, so um, sorry for any disappointment, Um, and you're free to leave if you are are disappointed. Uh, Let's dive in then, uh, in this first point. God is committed to us now. Now, how do you know someone is committed to you? Well, they could say, I'm committed or they could do something favorable to you. They could buy you a gift. They could show you some sort of generosity with their time, with their money. Well, God does both. He declares his commitment to us, and he shows us incredible generosity. Now, where do we see this? Well, in verse 1, we see God declare his commitment to us. Verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. Now, justification, uh, let's do the technical bit. Justification is that legal verdict that someone is in the right with God. But notice when it says we are justified. Have a look at verse 1 again. Since we have been justified. See, I think most people, I said this last week, but uh, it's worth repeating. I think most people Imagine that the big decision God makes comes in the future, that uh, when we die, when we meet him uh, after our death, that's when God will act as judge, and that's the point in which God will declare us either right or wrong uh, before him. But no, actually, Romans 5 tells us that that decision is already in the past. It's not we will be justified. It's not we might be justified, but that we have been declared right with God already. So, if you're a Christian this morning, you've already faced God's judgment. You've already been called into the dock. You've already been found guilty. It's all been done. Jesus Christ, though, has taken your place so that you're no longer guilty. And the the judge's hammer falls, but not to condemn you, but declare you innocent. And you walk away free, a justified person. And that verdict, that verdict changes everything with God. Again, verse 1 says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, notice when it happens, we have peace. It's already the case. I don't know about you, but we long for peace in our world, don't we? When you're watching the TV in a image of war comes up, you you long in your heart that some solution would be found, that this might end. Or if we're used to um, difficult personal relationships where people are angry with one another, we long for peace and reconciliation. But actually, as you look at the Bible, you see that our greatest need for peace in this world is with God himself. Now, I guess as I say that, to our culture, that that might seem like a surprise. Why do we need peace with God? 
I mean, a lot of us imagine that if there is a God, we're already at peace with Him. But God is like a judge. He is a judge. And He's like a judge with any integrity. When faced with genuine wrongdoing, He has to judge. There cannot be peace with Him and the defendant. Now, the question then becomes, well, have we done wrongdoing? I mean, it's not something we like to think uh, about ourselves. And that's why Romans 1 to 4 is so important. If you've not read it before, please go away and and read it. Please um, download the talks uh, that are on the website from last year, because it shows us that every single one of us has wronged God, wronged our neighbor, and that we're not at peace with God. Uh, Romans 3.10 says this, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That includes you, it includes me. But now, here's the important point, now there is peace with God. The war has ended. The rebuilding has begun. We're reconciled enemies, and there is hope. It doesn't stop there. God's generosity uh, not only builds us a new relationship with him, but a new status. Have a look at verse 2. It says this, through him, uh, through whom, Jesus Christ, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now, that seems quite complicated. What does that mean? Well, grace speaks of God's unconstrained favor to his creatures. And normally we think of grace in terms of how God saves us, that he saves us by grace alone. He, he saves us through his favor. But here it's speaking more of our status now as Christians. We stand, we're located in his favor. A few years ago, I traveled to Thailand, and um, you'll know Thailand is quite far away. You need to get a plane there, um, otherwise it's a, it's a long walk. And um, the thing is, I don't really enjoy flying um, on account of having limbs like a giraffe. It's not comfortable. But anyway, on this trip, I, as I checked in, I said, is there any chance of getting some extra leg room? And uh, do you know what? I was given an upgrade. No cost, no constraints, uh, just free to enjoy business class. And it was pretty cool because, you know, as you go into a plane, you normally turn right to the cattle class. Actually, I was turned left, and I was able to go beyond the curtain. And uh, I was greeted with this tray of champagne, and uh, took one of those, of course, and uh, asked if I wanted a newspaper. So I took the FT just to look the part. So, and uh, a person, as we took off, a personal chef came out and said, what would you like to eat, sir? And cooked uh, everything to my uh, order. See, there are some perks of being tall, you know. Yes, I've got a lot of bruises on my head. Yes, I have to duck a lot. But actually, once, uh, once uh, now and again, you get to get upgraded. Now, we're, because we're just... Because we're justified, our status has changed. It's like we've got a new ticket. We, we stand in a place where God is unconstrained in his favor towards you. Now, Paul goes on in verse 3 to speak about suffering. Now, I don't know how you felt when it was read, but when I looked at this, I thought, why does he go there? Why does he go to suffering? It, it kind of brings the mood down a little bit. I mean, he's been talking about all the positive things that are, in, that are found in God, and now he goes to talk about our difficult suffering. Why does he do that? Well, it's because of this, I think. It's because suffering 
seems to go against all that Paul has said here. See, he's declared just how much God is for us, but I guess there are lots of us who sit there and think, it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like that when I suffer. Now, he's going to say a lot more about that in chapter 8, and um, so I'm not going to say much this morning on this topic. But, um, but I, I do want us to see here that because God is now committed to us, that even our suffering, even those darkest moments in our life, are transformed from being hopeless to driving us towards hope. Have a look at verse 3 to see that. He says this, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. It's so strong because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. <coughs> I remember uh, when I became a Christian in my early 20s, I was a, I was a bit of an idiot. I was, a bit, I was keen, but I was a bit shallow, very shallow. Uh, I mean, I knew the gospel. I could kind of argue for it. Um, But there was a sense in which it was kind of surface level with me. But then God allowed me to suffer. Now, that's been in very limited ways compared to uh, what I know some of us go through. But that is when the hope of the future was made real to me. Now, we've got to be careful. Suffering is not a good thing in itself. But that's not the same thing as saying that it cannot be for our good. See, when we suffer, when we feel like all hope is lost, when we feel like we cannot go on, that's the point in which God makes us treasure Jesus in a way we couldn't otherwise have had. And that shows us that suffering is not a thing to help, uh, to cause us to lose our confidence in God's commitment to us. See, I don't know about you, but when suffering comes, it's very easy, isn't it, to to feel like God is against us, to feel that he's displeased. We ask questions like, is he displeased with me? Is he kind of punishing me for something I've gone through? Has he forgotten me? But none of those things are true. If you're in Jesus Christ, God is for you now, so that even your tears are used by him to grow you and grow you in hope. See, God is not a liquid relationship. He's not like so many of our relationships today. He's not half committed. He's not tentative. If you're in Jesus Christ, God is completely committed to you. And he's not going to be any more committed to you than he already is now. You're already justified. You already have peace. You are already standing in God's favor. I wonder, do you realize that? You realize that if you're a Christian. See, one of the problems, I think, of relationships today is um, quite often with people, we don't know where we stand. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this. You try to get to know someone, but you don't quite know what they think of you. And so you kind of hold off getting close to them, to trust in them. It's easy to do that with God, isn't it? But actually, he is so close to us. There is no need for doubt. He is committed to us now. He's committed to us now. But I guess there'd be some of us thinking, yeah, but what about the future? See, things change, don't they? These things might be true of me now, but what about the future? And what about if something changes? Perhaps we're someone, we think about judgment. 
Perhaps we wonder whether we've done enough. Perhaps we have those moments where we think to ourselves, is trust in Jesus' death and resurrection really enough to bring me through the fires of God's judgment? A while back, I knew a young Christian woman. She was a keen Christian. She was a lovely uh, lady, but she was plagued with fears about the future. See, she knew in her mind that Jesus was enough. If you had asked her the, the gospel, she would have known it. But she lost sleep, literally, over whether she would be the exception, whether she wouldn't be safe in God's judgment. And I guess there'd be some of us who feel something similar today. Or, or perhaps we think to ourselves, well, God may be favorable to me today, but, but what if I stuff up? Or, or what if he finds out something about me? And what if, you know, I sin and he changes his mind? When the second half of the passage, Paul shows us that God is completely committed to us, even in the future. Now, the question is, how do we know uh, that God is committed to us in the future? The future hasn't happened yet. And Paul is very interesting here. He twists a whole perspective. He twists a whole perspective from the future to what God has done in the past. Instead of looking forward to what might happen, Paul says, look at what has already happened to you. So what's happened? Verse 8. It says this, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice, when, when did Christ die for us? It's while we were still sinners. Or as verse 10 puts it, while we were enemies. Now, why is that significant? Well, if I was to ask you to um, imagine a list of people that you would die for, now, obviously, that wouldn't be a nice scenario, um, but imagine the situation presented itself. Who would you die for? I imagine in our heads a little list is appearing probably small, uh, perhaps including a, a wife or a husband, perhaps our kids, perhaps possibly even a parent. But I'm assuming that no one thought of a terrorist or an offender or the person that's wronged you in your life. And that's what you expect, isn't it? That's kind of how things work. That's the point Paul makes in verse 7. We might die for a good person, someone who's close to us, someone we like, but an enemy? Well, forget it. But that is what Jesus Christ did. He died for his enemies. He died for those who opposed him. It's unthinkable, isn't it? It's unimaginable that someone would give their life for someone who hated them. But that is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for you. I just want to make a little side point here, a little theological bit. Um, Notice that God doesn't love us because we show any tendency to love him. See, I've often described things this way, and I I hear this around sometimes, that God is kind of longing for us to come to him, but he waits for us to make the decision, to show some some willingness, some warmth to him, and then he kind of enters our our lives and, and transforms us. But this shows us the initiative is all on the side of God, isn't it? It's not that we meet him halfway. It's not that we give 20% and he gives 80%. Jesus dies for us, knowing there isn't a measure of warmth in our hearts towards him. It's incredible. A couple of months ago, I read, uh, watched the film um, Hacksaw Ridge. Now, 
this isn't a film recommendation. It's a war film. It's pretty gory. And um, yeah, so please don't blame me if you, yeah, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's not, some of it's a bit violent. But, um, but it's actually based on a film that's a, a, it's a oh, sorry, it's a film based on a true story. It's based on the story of Private Desmond Doss, who was a US soldier. Now, Desmond uh, was a uh, conscientious objector in World War II uh, because of his religious beliefs. He refused to shoot anyone, and uh, he even refused to carry a rifle. And uh, he wanted to uh, enlist, though, to help out uh, other people. Now, you can imagine, this is World War II. This is going to go down very, very badly. He offered to be a medic, but actually lots of people thought he was a coward. He was a liability. And uh, if you see pictures of him, he's a skinny guy, and you can imagine him entering a platoon of soldiers all beef, beefy up, uh, beefed, uh, beefed up and uh, saying that he wasn't going to fight. I, I mean, you can imagine what happened, can't you? And in the film, you see it. He's beaten up. He's abused. He's bruised. He's cut. They taunted him. Even his superiors did it. And a while later, he's involved in a battle with the Japanese, um, a battle that takes place on the top of this huge cliff. That's why it's called Hacksaw Ridge. And the only way up it is these rope ladders. And when they went up it, it was a complete ambush. Man after man was shot and left for dead. It was a complete disaster. People fleed. They wanted to send in a rescue team, but because it was up this cliff, there was no hope. And these injured men were just left for dead. And there's a great moment when this private, this conscientious objector, is given a way down the cliff. Remember, this is a true story. He's offered a way down the cliff, but he decides to turn back and enter the kill zone. He crawls and rescues a man, one after the other, through the night, lowering each one down the cliff on ropes. Remember, these were the very men that heaped abuse on him, that made his life a misery. And he crawls back to save them. And he does this all night. And in the end, he saves 75 men. And he even saves some Japanese. There's a great moment at the end of the film where the captain who abused this soldier says this, you've done more than any other man could have done in service of his country. Now, I've never been more wrong about someone in my life. And I hope that one day you can forgive me. It's a true story. It's an incredible story that someone was, who was so wronged by others would give, uh, risk their life to save them. But there's an even more wonderful and incredible truth that Jesus Christ has given up his life to save others, to save us. Now, how does this help us see that God is committed to us in the future? Well, two things. It shows us that God already knows what we're like. See, God knows you, and he chose to save you. God knows what's in your heart. He knows your sin. He, he knows, like, if I could put it like this and be polite, he knows you're a mess. He, he knows I'm a mess. We don't have to kind of fear him suddenly realizing who we are uh, and then giving up on us. If he sent his son to die, while you opposed him. There's no sin in the future that's going to surprise him. And secondly, if God has done all this already, getting us through judgment is the easy part. 
Uh, that's what verse 9 says. Have a look uh, at it. It says this, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more should, will we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we, when we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? How much more? Imagine you were going to visit a friend or a family member on the other side of the world. You save up for a plane fare for months, you, uh, you buy the ticket, you book the time off work, you drive to the airport, you board the flight, you sit on the plane for hours watching terrible movies, you uh, get off, you get a taxi from the airport to your friend's house, you get out the taxi, you drag your suitcase up the path. It's unthinkable, isn't it, that at that point you would turn back and go all the way back home. No, what would you do? you press the doorbell. And that's Paul's point here. Just look at the lengths God has already gone for you. A holy God managed to justify unholy sinners. Even though you showed no inclination in your hearts towards him, Jesus came and spilt his blood. He took the wrath of his Father to bring you to God. I mean, having done all that, it's unthinkable that God wouldn't finish the job. See, if we fear the future, and I guess some of us will, we will have those moments in our life, we need to look to the cross. Because at the cross, we see the incredible lengths God has gone already to bring us to himself. And if he's done all that, he's not going to fail to do the easy thing of bringing you through judgment. See, God is not a liquid relationship. He's not someone half committed. He's not someone who will go cold in the future. He is committed to you now, and he is committed to you forever. Some implications as we close. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, or you're not sure whether you're a Christian, I, I wonder, do you see God in this way? See, I think a lot of us uh, imagine that to come to God means doing something some act of religious devotion or some lifestyle change, and then we can kind of consider ourselves right with God. And perhaps there'd be some of us here this morning who kind of hold off coming to God until we feel that we've sorted out our own lives. But that is what the op that's the opposite of what we see here, isn't it? See, God takes the initiative. He comes to seek us even when we didn't go to him. There's nothing like this. See, we all crave stable relationships where we can know that someone is completely committed to us. Well, that is what is on offer in Jesus Christ. And for us Christians, there are two implications. First of all, this love that God shows to us should shape the love of our church community. Now, Paul's going to go there later in chapter 12, but uh, at the pace we're going, we're probably not going to get there for a few years, and uh, I'm not sure where I'm going to be around, so um, I just thought I'd get, there in, get in there now. Now, um, he draws in chapter 12 a parallel between God's love for us, uh, love when he didn't deserve it, with uh, love for us when we didn't deserve it, with the love we show towards others. Now, I don't know about you, but often my default can be drawn to those who are lovable, to those who are cool, to those who are going to make me feel good, who offer something back. But God didn't do that with me, didn't do that with you. 
And that means it just gives us a completely different perspective on relationships to our culture around us. We don't build our relationships on what someone's going to give us. We love them like God has loved us, even down to our enemies. Second implication is our emotional response to this. See, verse 11 finishes by saying that we rejoice in God because of all this. Actually, the word there is boast. We boast in God. Now, all of us, I think, boast. We, we love boasting, don't we? We love boasting about our football teams. We love boasting at the latest deal we've managed to get on our mobile phone or a TV or whatever. Uh, we love boasting about our holidays, the cruises we go on, the, the hot places we visit. But the question is, I think, for all of us and for me, is, is this, first and foremost, what we boast in? See, John Stott, who's an old Anglican minister, he says about this verse, the mark the major mark of justified believers is joy, especially joy in God himself. He says this, we should be the most positive people in the world. I wonder what that would look like for you in the week ahead, to rejoice in this. Let's pray. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our gracious and glorious Heavenly Father, it is unimaginable to think that Jesus Christ showed love in this way towards us. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, that while we hated you, while we were against you, while we were your enemies, Jesus Christ came and brought us to yourself. Please, our Heavenly Father, burn that truth on our hearts so that we may have confidence in your commitment towards us, both now and in the future. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.